0: Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we understand that all of the preparation, all of the logistics, all of the administration that we can be focused on, even private study of your Word, leading to our time of corporate worship, singing, giving, fellowship, Lord, even of virtual, the preaching and application of your Word, none of it will go anywhere unless your Spirit works in our hearts and lives. So, Father, we pray even now, as we've already begun to focus our thoughts on Jesus Christ, his person and his work, by our brothers up here and our sisters who have led us into the presence of our glorious Christ, I pray that you would empower us by your spirit, the preaching of your word, as well as the application of your word. Help us, Father, this morning, by your grace, to be not only hearers of your word, but those who are doers of your word, who apply your word to our hearts and lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We'll open your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 37 is our text for this morning. Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 37. We've been working through this wonderful gospel. The gospel according to Mark. Um, learning about the person and the work of our Lord Jesus. And we're here in this wonderful passage. Mark 9, 30 through 37. Let me read it for us. From there, they went out and began to go through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know about it. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had discussed with one another which one of them was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Taking the child, he set him before them, and taking them in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me but him who sent me. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. The title of this morning's message is A Lesson on Humility. A Lesson on Humility. You know, I loved seminary. Seminary for me was a wonderful experience. I know that there's other brothers who I went to seminary with that didn't um, share that opinion. But I enjoyed seminary so much. I loved the classes that I took. The content that we learned in seminary classes was wonderful. I learned many lessons in those four years or so that I um, went through seminary. Um, Just the value of hard study, hard work, and theological studies. um, The value of finishing something that I had started again and again and again, obviously. Um, It was wonderful to sit under the men that I got to sit under. uh, Men who were godly Christian men. Some of them Bible translators, missionaries, present or former pastors, who uh, their mission now in life was not only to pastor and to have their own ministries, but they were devoted to training Uh, men for the work of the ministry I love sitting under those men and I learned great lessons from them about prayer and the importance of prayer private prayer and ongoing prayer and corporate prayer I learned the lesson of devotion to the word of God I learned lessons about cultivating the right kinds of character from within walking with integrity and the importance of that the importance of of loving the flock and being uh, having that balance of speaking the truth yes but in love The lesson of enduring in ministry um, and cultivating the right kind of philosophy of ministry. Learned so many lessons from the men at the seminary, and I was so, so grateful for that. But as much as I love my seminary experience, I didn't get to experience what the disciples got to experience. Because you see, the disciples, as we've been learning in the Gospel of Mark, went to the ultimate seminary with the ultimate master teacher, the Lord Jesus Christ. And boy, did he teach them some lessons, didn't he? As even they get, he gets prepared to go to the cross, to go to Jerusalem, there are lessons that he continues to teach his disciples. He's already taught them lessons about what it means to follow after him, to deny themselves, take up their cross, and, and continually follow after him, the cost of following him. They've learned lessons about the suffering that they're going to be going through, following after his own example. They've learned lessons about love and compassion and showing mercy to people. They've learned lessons about His glory, the glory of Christ, and how everything needs to flow from that. And they're going to continue to learn that lesson. They've learned lessons from our Lord about childlike dependent faith. That is to um, overflow onto a life of consistent, regular prayer before the Lord. They've learned many lessons from our Lord. Their training was full of those lessons. And here in Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 37, is yet another lesson that we get an opportunity to glean from that our Lord taught his disciples, and that is a lesson about humility. A lesson about humility. Humility is so important, isn't it? I'm sure that if you've been walking with the Lord for a, a while already, you've come to realize that it's so crucial to cultivate a heart of humility. It's one of the chief Christian virtues. Someone has said that the three greatest traits of the true Christian are growing holiness, that is, you're becoming more like Jesus, a maturing love, and an ever-increasing humility. I love that. I think that that's true. We won't ever be perfect in any of those three areas, of course, in this lifetime. But they should be more and more evident as time passes and as the Spirit of God works in our hearts and lives. Holiness, becoming like Jesus, a maturing, growing love, and an increasing humility. Andrew Murray in his book on humility, which is a great book, by the way, that I would recommend that you read. It's just a small book right now as you have a little more time than usual. It might take you a week to get through that little book. Andrew Murray wrote this book on humility and he writes, quote, The greatest test of whether the holiness we profess to seek or to attain to is truth in life will be whether it produces an increasing humility in us. In man, humility is the one thing needed to allow God's holiness to dwell in him and shine through him. The chief mark of counterfeit holiness is lack of humility. The holiest will be the humblest. So true. To be Christ-like is to be humble, as Pastor Brock said earlier. To be Christ-like is to be humble. Jonathan Edwards wrote this. We must view humility as one of the most essential things that characterizes true Christianity. Nothing sets a person so much out of the devil's reach as humility, end quote. Amen to that. It's why Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Well, the Lord's disciples needed a lesson on this. They needed a lesson on humility. If they were to be the foundation of the church that was to be birthed at Pentecost, if they were to be used greatly of God in His work, they needed to learn and grow in humility, in lowliness of mind. And brothers and sisters, if we want to be used of the Lord in our marriages, in the lives of our kids, in our jobs, in the world, in the church with other brothers and sisters, we must be people who are cultivating humility as well. So I want us to consider this lesson on humility here, but I want us to do so by looking at the contrast of our Lord, who was the ultimate example of humility in verses 30 through 32, from that of the disciples who needed a lesson on humility in verses 33 through 37. And my prayer has been that each of us might consider ways that God is calling us to humble ourselves before His presence, to cultivate greater humility in our hearts and lives. You know, C.H. Spurgeon said that there are two types of Christians, those who humble themselves or those who are being humbled. Right? And I pray that we would be the former, those who, by the grace of God, humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God, rather than being humbled. So let's look first, if you're taking notes, on the humility of Christ in verses 30 through 32. Our Lord was the ultimate example of humility. In fact, at the end of Matthew 12, he invites people to come to him. Why? Because he is gentle, gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That's what Jesus said about Himself. And that, if any other human being would have said, that is arrogance, but in the case of our Lord, it was true. He was the ultimate example of humility. And what we see here is the humility of our Lord set in contrast to the pride of His disciples. First, we see the humility of our Lord in His eagerness for privacy. His eagerness for privacy. Look at verse 30. From there... That is the northern part of Palestine where they've been for a while. From there, they went out and began to go through Galilee. And the sense of the grammar there that he began, they began to go through Galilee is that they weren't prolonging their stay anywhere. Jesus is seeking isolation with his disciples in order to invest into them because of what is coming, because of their journey to Jerusalem and what is going to take place there. And the text tells us that he did not want anyone to know about it. He wants personal time with his disciples. But also, I would submit to you, as is the character of Christ throughout the Gospel of Mark, that Jesus not only is looking for personal time with his disciples, but he doesn't want the superficial publicity. Jesus was never overly enamored or enamored at all by the attention that he would get. Jesus was not about getting attention, inviting attention, wanting publicity, wanting popularity. And I love this about him because there are people in our culture, if you survey our culture, that are so concerned with popularity, so concerned with publicity, so concerned with those things, even false teachers presently, in the midst and in the face of a crisis that we're experiencing, heralding themselves as the ones who have the answer, the prophetic answers, And asking people to give them money and give them accolades and all of that. If they want answers to the current crisis and why things are the way that they are. People in our culture crave popularity, crave fame. But Jesus, though he deserved all fame, all popularity, all glory, and he was worthy of it, did not seek it out. He was the ultimate example of humility. We also see the Lord's humility in his expressed purpose. His expressed purpose. Look at verse 31. For Jesus was teaching His disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill Him. And when He has been killed, He will rise three days later. This is what He was continually teaching them. That's the sense. He didn't only tell them once or twice, but He was continually teaching His disciples about what was to befall Him in Jerusalem in five, six months from the time that He says this. His coming suffering, his death, his resurrection was coming. This was the ongoing subject matter of the Lord's conversation with his disciples. This is not the first time that Mark records Jesus speaking to them about this. If you turn back in chapter 8 and verse 31, notice that it says there that he began to teach them, his disciples, that the Son of Man must suffer many things. "...and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again." He was continually teaching them these things. And in Mark chapter 10 and verse 32, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful." And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, verse 33, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him, and three days later he will rise again. So this, this subject matter of his suffering, his death, and his resurrection is the ongoing topic that Jesus is having with these disciples. Now, as we've said before, the disciples are having a very difficult time getting their arms wrapped around this suffering Messiah. They're looking for a reigning, conquering Messiah, but he keeps talking about the fact that he's going to suffer first. And again, we see our Lord's humility and his evident patience with his disciples. Look at verse 32. But they did not understand this statement, the statement about his coming suffering and death. And they were afraid to ask him. They didn't want to talk about what was going to happen to him. They wanted to avoid this. Fear gripped them. In fact, Matthew chapter 17 and verse 23 says that they were deeply grieved. Not only could they not come to grips with the suffering Messiah... Before a reigning one, but they were sad, they were sorrowful that such a thing could even happen to their Lord, so they wouldn't even bring up the matter, and yet Jesus keeps bringing it up again and again and again, but through all of this, and their journey of growing and their knowledge and understanding, He is so patient with His disciples. So patient, so enduring. Patience is a Christ-like virtue that flows from a heart of humility. And if anyone exhibited such patient humility, it was our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we have such a hard time as human beings, as sinners, showing patience to other sinners just like us. And yet Jesus, who is absolutely perfect and sinless, was so patient with people. He was the ultimate example of humility. Now I find the placing of this short little account here, So interesting in the light of what's come before and what is to follow here in Mark's gospel. Here's Jesus continually setting before his disciples the reality of his coming suffering. This is the same Jesus who for three years has been performing mighty miracles, powerful miracles. This is the same Jesus who just unveiled his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration, a glimpse of his glory for the inner three, and now... Here is the ultimate act of humility in verse 31 being articulated. That he is going to head to Jerusalem. He's going to subject himself to men to be ridiculed, to suffer, to die on a shameful cross. Why? So that he might rescue guilty sinners from their sin, from condemnation, and from hell. Please take note, the king models for us, The kingdom principle of he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is Christ. This is Christ. I kept thinking about that great passage of Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5 that Pastor Brock read earlier. That says that, that, speaks about Christ's humble condescension. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus Who, although he existed in the form of God, that is, he is God, he was God, he never ceased to be God. He existed in the form of God. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. That is, he didn't seize upon his rights and privileges as God. What did he do instead? But emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men being found in appearance as a man, here it is, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Ponder the great reality and marvel at the great reality, brothers and sisters, that God's eternal Son, through whom and for whom the universe was created, humbled himself by coming to earth, becoming a man, subjecting himself to human parents and all the common physical limitations, yet sinless, subjected himself then to be tortured and to be killed and to die on the cross for sinners such as you and I what a humility what humble condescension christ is the humble suffering servant isn't he may we worship him for who he is but now with christ in mind and his humility in mind let's look at the contrast what about the disciples What about those who have been spending so much time with our Lord, watching Him do His miracles and seeing His example of compassion and love and mercy shown toward people? Notice, secondly, the pride of men. The pride of men in verses 33 through 37. If Christ, His mindset and His mission, shows His great humility, Mark shows us the contrast that the disciples are the stark opposite And he shows us their pride in a very shocking way. Just pause to consider this before we look at the text. Pause to consider. Peter, James, and John have just seen a glimpse of the glory of Christ. All of them, the twelve, have continually for two plus years now Close to three years, seeing the power of Christ in the healing of many people, many sick, many demon-possessed. They just saw Jesus heal another boy yet again of demon-possession. And obviously they were utterly humbled, the nine, in the fact that they couldn't do that miracle, even though they had been given the power to do it because they became self-dependent. Think of that context. And on top of all of this, Jesus keeps continually talking about the subject matter of his suffering, of his death for sinners on the cross. And what are the disciples thinking about through all of this? Who is the greatest? Who is the greatest? And I marvel at the fact that our Lord, being the gracious Savior that he is, he's going to help his disciples. He's going to straighten them out in a gracious, loving, patient way. But he's going to correct them. How does he do this? First, we see pride exposed. He exposes their pride in verses 33 and 34 by asking a question. Notice in verse 33, they came to Capernaum, which was his ministry headquarters. He would go there again and again. And when he was in the house, he began to question them. What were you discussing on the way? Oopsies. What were you guys continually arguing about? What were you guys debating about? Now, Jesus is not asking here because he doesn't know Luke chapter 9, verse 47 says that Jesus knew what they were thinking in their heart, so he's not asking to, to gain more information. He's asking because he wants to draw them out, to get them to see their problem, to diagnose their problem. That's why he's asking. By the way, this is what the Word of God does for us, isn't it? Christ did it for them, who was the Word in human flesh, right? Exposing their sin. The Word of God does that for us. Exposes our sin convicts us of our sin, so that we come to the throne of grace and deal with our sin by confessing our sin and turning from it And instead walking in loving obedience to the word of god So the word of god does that for us but here jesus the word in the flesh Is asking them a question a diagnostic question He's drawing them out and notice their initial response in verse 34 they kept silent No one responds I mean, these guys ought to be ashamed of themselves. This is an awkward moment. They are embarrassed and ashamed, and they should be. They should be. Why? Mark tells us in verse 34, For on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. Greatest from the word that we get, Megas. Megas. They're debating who is Mega Man. Who is number one? Who is numero uno? Number one. Who is top dog? That's what they're debating, continually discussing. Apparently they had done this away from Jesus. Maybe Jesus had been walking ahead of them on this journey to Capernaum, to their ministry headquarters, and they've been discussing this, and the Lord knew about this. I mean, can you imagine the, the conversation and the competitive spirit from these guys? Can you imagine the the three, Peter, James, and John, saying to the nine, You guys are pathetic. What happened to you guys? How come you guys weren't able to heal that kid who was demon possessed? For us, that would have been a piece of cake. Done deal. The nine responding to the inner three, What makes you guys so special? Why do you guys get all of these opportunities? Teachers, pets. The three answering. You got that right? We're the inner circle. We're Jesus' favorites. Look at all the times that Jesus has allowed us to be with him, seeing unique things. By the way, should we tell you for the hundredth time what we saw up on the Mount of Transfiguration? Can you imagine the rivalry? Maybe not in these words, but this is the essence of it. There was a competitive spirit, this ongoing conversation. You didn't get to see Jesus and a glimpse of his glory, and Elijah, and Moses, we did. We're on that kind of level with those guys now, the inner three say. And Peter, of course, speaking up, as always, as you know. You guys know what? I'm the greatest. I mean, do you remember when, I, when how Jesus affirmed my confession as a spokesman? Right? I'm the greatest of us all. If anyone's going to get the title of top dog, it's yours truly, says Peter. Maybe in his heart. See, they know that there's a kingdom coming with all of this talk about the kingdom. It gets them thinking about prominence, prestige, rank in the kingdom. And can you imagine our Lord? How burdened he must have been. He's just, he just, we just read how he was grieved over the unbelieving generation of his day. And now these guys that he's been investing into, they're duking it out over who's numero uno, who's number one, who is top dog. By the way, this isn't the last time these guys are going to struggle with pride. Later on in Mark chapter 10 and verse 35, after his his third prediction of his death and resurrection as recorded by Mark, James and John asked Jesus the following question or the following request, Grant that we may sit in your glory, one on your right and one on your left. The audacity of these guys. And Matthew chapter 20 and verse 20 actually says, Ready for this? That they even brought their mama with them, who said to Jesus, Command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine, Lord, may sit, one on your right hand and one on your left. I want my baby sitting in the two highest places of prominence, Lord. Can you grant that request for them? Can you make it happen? Audacity, right? Mark 10:41 says the other ten became indignant. With James and John. You know why? Because they wanted the same thing. They became jealous and envious because they wanted the same thing in their own hearts. So think about this. Here's the ultimate humble Redeemer. But as he approaches his death, one of the main issues that he's going to continually be training his disciples and developing them in is a heart of humility to deal with their pride, to set aside their pride, and to think lowly of themselves in the light of the glory that they've seen. The glory that they've witnessed from the person and the work of Jesus. I love what J.C. Rao writes, quote, How strange this sounds. Who would have thought that a few fishermen and tax collectors could have been overcome by rivalry and the desire for supremacy? Who would have expected that poor men who had given up everything for Christ's sake would have been troubled by strife and dissension as to the place and precedence which each one deserved? Yet so it is. The fact is recorded for our learning. The Holy Spirit has caused it to be written down for the perpetual use of Christ's church. Let us take care that it is not written in vain. Serious words, but true. In other words, the contrast here of the pride of the disciples from our Lord's humility is written for, as a lesson for us, beloved brothers and sisters, who read these accounts. Because the danger is, you see, you see, that we read these accounts and we look at the example of the disciples and we think to ourselves, boy, those guys were sure were knuckleheads. If I would have been there, I would have been different. No, you wouldn't have. No, you wouldn't have. And I wouldn't have either. What did they do? These men saw the power of Christ throughout their journey with Him in their life with Jesus, and they were yet continually afraid, continually anxious all the time. Don't we do the same? Haven't we seen the power of God at work in our lives, in our Christian journey Over and over again, his provision, his care, his protection, all of those things. And yet we live in fear and we live in anxiety. Thinking that he's not going to care for us anymore. He's not going to protect us anymore. We live atheistically. Even if we don't, we would never say that. As if there is no God. They were given spiritual ability to do the work of the Lord. And yet they failed to do it many a time because they trusted in themselves. Don't you and I do the same? Haven't we been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ? We've been given the Holy Spirit to permanently indwell us, spiritual gifting, everything that pertains to life and godliness, God's word, God's church, God's people. We've been given everything. And yet oftentimes we become self-dependent, self-trusting. We doubt in his ability to help us accomplish the good works that he has set for us to do. We doubt him. Listen, all of these are subtle forms of pride. Brothers and sisters, pride is a devastating sin. It's been around from the very beginning. It was pride that led Satan to fall. It was ultimately pride that led to the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It is pride that caused David to sin. Pride is a root sin, it lies at the heart of every other sin. That we can commit. And it's very subtle, isn't it? Like a friend of mine used to say and still says, Be careful with pride. It is so subtle. Pride is like bad breath. Everyone knows you have it except you. I like that. Pride is so subtle. We manifest pride when we think of ourselves better than others. Constantly comparing ourselves to other people. Measuring ourselves in comparison to others rather than Christ. We manifest pride when our needs become more important than meeting the needs of those around us because we've elevated ourselves to a point where we are higher than other people. Thus, our needs are more important. We manifest pride when we think we deserve better circumstances than we're getting. That God owes us better circumstances. That somehow God has promised a suffer-free life, trial-free life, which He hasn't, as we've learned. But there's a cost for following after Jesus. Salvation is free, but discipleship, ongoing following of Christ, is costly. But we have the Spirit of God that empowers us and the grace of God with us. We manifest pride when we don't trust God because we can't control our circumstances or because we have questions that are unanswered. Conversely, it's the mark of a humble person who trusts God, because we realize that even though we might have questions, there's somebody infinitely greater, infinitely majestic, who has all wisdom, who is always good, who is always just, and we can trust him. He never fails. He is absolutely faithful. We can trust him. And that's what a humble Christian does. We show pride for those of you who do not know Christ. When God continues to call on you to turn from your sins, And to trust in Jesus Christ. And you willingly choose to spurn God's free gift of forgiveness and salvation found in Jesus Christ alone. The heart of unbelief is the proud heart. The proud heart. Because we don't want to give up our sin and embrace God's free gift of forgiveness in Jesus Jesus Christ. Excuse me. So these are all forms of pride. J.C. Ryle writes, quote, It is an awful act. Whether we like to admit it or not, that pride is one of the commonest sins which beset human nature. We are all born Pharisees. We all naturally think far better of ourselves than we ought. We all naturally imagine that we deserve something better than we have. It is an old sin. It began in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve thought they had not gotten everything that their merits deserved. It is a subtle sin. It rules and reigns in many a heart without being detected and can even wear the clothing of humility. It is a most soul-ruining sin. It prevents repentance, keeps people back from Christ, withholds brotherly love, and nips spiritual concern in the bud. Let us watch against it and be on guard. Of all clothing, none is so graceful, none wears so well, and none is so rare as true humility. True humility. And this is where our Lord Jesus is headed now. Having exposed their pride, we see, secondly, pride corrected. Pride corrected in verses 35 through 37. I love this. He corrects them by teaching them a principle and then illustrating that principle. Look at verse 35. Sitting down, he called the 12. The Lord takes this posture of a teacher. This is a teaching moment for his disciples as he summons his disciples to come into his presence. It's like those teaching moments you've had again and again and again during this whole coronavirus thing, right? With your kids at home in isolation. Over and over again. This is the picture. Jesus is is summoning his disciples to himself. And here's the principle in verse 35. If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. I want you to notice something. Jesus doesn't explicitly condemn the desire that these disciples have to be first for greatness. This may shock some of us. He doesn't rebuke them for that desire. Who doesn't want their lives to mean something? Which one of us would say that we don't want to have, make a lasting impact in life? Which of us don't want at the end of our lives to know that we've accomplished something of significance? What Jesus does, however, I want you to notice, is turn things on their head. I love what D. Edmund Hebert writes here. Jesus does not despise the desire to be first, but his definition of greatness stands the world's ordering of priorities on its head and radically challenges a fundamental assumption about achievement. In other words, all that these disciples have been exposed to from the time that they were born, from their previous heroes, the religious leaders of the day, is to pursue and seek and to crave prominence, position prestige, rank. The religious leaders craved greatness in the form of accolades and honor from men and admiration from others and respectable places, etc. But Jesus turns these fleshly priorities on their head, doesn't he? And he challenges them to reorient their pursuit of greatness from an earthly, external, self-righteous, hypocritical one to a kingdom one. Because Christians live not by earthly principles, but by kingdom principles. Jesus says, you want to be first? You want to be great in the kingdom? Assume the lowly posture of a servant. Choose to to serve others before yourself. Devote yourself to the meeting of the needs of others. Instead of asking for the crown that you might reign... Ask for the towel that you might serve. That's what he's saying. You shall be last of all and servant of all if you want greatness. Boy, this is so countercultural, isn't it? So counterintuitive for us. It's not natural or common for us to run to the last place to serve other people. That's not what comes natural to us. Our world says, me first. We love winners. We hate losers. People are called and taught to step on whoever they need to step on to advance themselves, to get that promotion, to win that prize. There's constant competition, constant rivaling of one another. Now, we need to be clear. Jesus is not saying here that you shouldn't do your best in every endeavor in life. Jesus is not saying that you shouldn't strive to be successful in all that you pursue that competing to win or getting a promotion or receiving rewards for a job well done or at school or whatever, that that is wrong in and of itself. He's also not talking here about false humility that says, woe is me. I am worthless. I'm no good. What do I have to offer? Sinclair Ferguson writes, humility isn't simply feeling small and useless like some inferiority complex. It is sensing how great and glorious God is and seeing myself in the light of that glory. True humility is not self-deprecation and humiliation. I'm nothing, I'm worthless, but an attitude of unselfishness and self-forgetfulness which seeks the welfare of others. Humility and service are not only the passport to greatness in Christ's kingdom, but also the very essence of greatness in God's kingdom end quote i love that so he corrects them by teaching them the kingdom principle of humble servanthood if they want to be great but now he illustrates the principle notice verse 36 taking a child he set him before them and taking him in his arms he said to them he's beginning to teach them again looking using this child as an illustration our lord was the master teacher wasn't he Because what is true about a child, and by the way, this is a young child, most likely a toddler or a little infant. Jesus takes him, coddles him in his arms, sets him before them. Picture that. Picture that. What was true of a little child like that? They are vulnerable, trusting, dependent, unassuming. They don't boast of great rank or position or prominence. Some of you are laughing this off. Sure, eventually they begin to fight for those, right, when they get smart enough that they want to rule the joint. But when a child is young, they are dependent. They are of humble posture. They are needy. They look to you for what they need. Now, Jesus is not talking here about a literal child. Notice what he says in verse 37. Whoever receives one child like this, He's not speaking of a literal child, but one like this. In other words, of the character of humble posture as this little child. In fact, in the parallel account of Matthew 18 and verse 3, He said to them, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. And then He clarifies what He means by like children. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying if you want to enter the kingdom. You want to be saved. You want to become a Christian. You must humble yourself as a little child. Not her- heralding your great accomplishments. But dependent. Dependent. It's the kind of heart that Jesus mentions in Matthew 5.3. In the Sermon on the Mount. When he says blessed or happy are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's those who humble themselves, who recognize their spiritual bankruptcy, that they have nothing to offer God, that they are sinners who have nothing to offer the Lord but their sin, and instead trust in Jesus Christ. It's those who humble themselves that way who can inherit the kingdom of heaven, who can be saved from their sins. But then Jesus expands on this. He's not just illustrating the kind of attitude we should all possess, but how we should act toward one another, and treat one another as children of God. Look at verse 37. Whoever receives one child like this in my name, that is with the motive of of my glory, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. Whoever receives, it means to, to welcome, to embrace, to show kindness to. It's closely related to Jesus' statement in verse 35. The kind of attitude that that puts others before yourself. The kind of attitude that is devoted to serving others first. The kind of attitude that, that takes delight in being kind to others and meeting the needs of others. Even the least of these. What he's saying is that rather than having a high view of ourselves, rather than having an attitude of pride, we must assume a posture of humble meekness, and not only for our own not for our own glory, but with the motivation of god's glory, How gracious of our Lord, not only to show them and us the attitude that they should have, but also how to act toward one another in humble service. R Ken Hughes writes quote, "Today we live on the other side of these great events." But the church is in great need of deliverance from these very attitudes. There is a mindset that defines ministry as a kind of lordship. Sitting in the honored seat, being the feted guests at luncheons, speaking to vast throngs, building monuments and collecting honorary titles. This type of attitude values being Served. For those caught up in such thinking, Christianity exists to give me eternal life, to increase my physical health, to cuddle my body, to enlarge my power, to elevate my prestige, end quote. I love that. That last part especially because there's a subtle form of pride that manifests itself in a me-first attitude that is committed to self-exaltation rather than exalting the glory of Christ. See, for us who are Christians, brothers and sisters... For those of us who are the children of God, who are kingdom citizens, we live by kingdom principles following after the pattern of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? That is what we need to be about. Now, how do we cultivate a heart of humility? How do we cultivate a heart of humility? I want to give you three primary things, okay? There are many others that we can work through, but hopefully these are helpful to you. One, keep your eyes focused on Christ. Fix your eyes on Jesus Christ. Amazingly so, the disciples took their eyes off of Christ even though they've seen the things that they've seen and even the glimpse of His glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. They've seen His power, His compassion, all of these things. That is what would have kept them humble if they implemented that high view of Jesus, fixing their eyes on the Great One so that they're not focused on themselves. We don't Grow in humility by comparing ourselves to others or their accomplishments and how they compare to ours. But by gazing upon the glory of Jesus, and then we're brought very low, aren't we? The whole idea of humility is to think lowly of oneself. Not again in a self-deprecating way, like I'm not worthy, I'm nothing. But we think lowly of ourselves because we are beholding the glory of God, and then we, ha- we can have a proper assessment of self. John Owen wrote, quote, humility is the proper estimate of oneself. It's to think rightly of oneself, to think of oneself, ready for this, in the light of who God is in his infinite glory, end quote. That's it. That's it. It's like going to the Rocky Mountains or Niagara Falls or the Grand Canyon, one of these great sites of of nature. You don't walk away from those places feeling really good about yourself, right? Right? You don't walk away from those places having a high view of yourself. You walk away in wonder and amazement at the fact that God could create places like that. And boy, how miniature we are. So it is with beholding the beauty of God on the pages of His Word. We are brought very low and we become more and more humble people. So if we want to cultivate humility... Grow in our, let's, let us grow in our knowledge of our great God through the pages of his word. Read God's word. Spend time meditating upon God's word, beloved. Spend time memorizing God's word, especially for most of us who have more time to do that right now. Spend time reading good books like, like um, Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. The Attributes of God by A.W. Pink. There are so many books. If you want recommendations, email the elders. Email the pastors. We'd love to give you recommendations. This is, of course, in addition to the Word of God. Second, this gazing upon God will lead to us devoting ourselves to serving others. You want to cultivate humility in your life? Devote yourself to serving other people. Humble people are servant-minded people. Because as Pastor Brock read earlier from Philippians chapter 2, humble people put the needs of others before themselves as more important than their own. Philippians chapter 2 verses 1 through 4. John MacArthur writes, Greatness is not determined by status, but by servanthood. I love that. And who was the ultimate example of that? The Lord Jesus Christ, wasn't he? He humbly condescended, he, being the exalted Son of God, the eternal, exalted Son of God, willingly, joyfully, set aside his divine privileges in heaven to come to earth. Why? to serve sinners such as us, to die for sinners on the cross. He came to serve Matthew 10, mark 10:45 10, For the Son of Man, namely Christ, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Wow, that's our Lord. We need to follow his example. Even now in hard, challenging times, yes, consider ways of serving other people because the common thought is the opposite, right? You know, this whole virus thing is really hard. I got my own problems. I got my own worries. I got my own family, my own assets um, to take care of and to make sure that they're procured, to pr- protected. But listen, God doesn't give us a pass on not being others-minded during this time. He doesn't give us a pass. We're kingdom citizens. So even now, are you mindful of the needs of other people around you? How mindful have you been of the needs of your spouse through this time? How mindful have you been of the needs of your kids during this time? How mindful have you been of the needs of your extended family that God in His providence has allowed you to be a part of? How mindful have you been of them to ask them how they're doing? To look for opportunities if they're not safe to bring the the good news of the hope of Jesus to bear upon their thinking and their mentality and their outlook? What about other Christians? Have you been in regular contact with other Christians, looking for opportunities to care for people, to serve others, not just physically, but also just spiritually by way of encouragement? That's a heart of humility manifested in service, brothers and sisters. What about your neighbors? How mindful have you been of your neighbors, your friends, your coworkers, making yourself available to serve them and shine the light of Christ upon that situation with that friendship or that particular um, acquaintance that you have? See, we can get so wrapped up in our own hardship, our own struggles, all the while forgetting about other people around us. But I don't know about you, but what I've found is that when I'm mindful and devoted by the grace of God to caring for other people, you know what? It's not that my problems go away, but God grants me the grace to realize that I don't have it so bad. And another thing, I am not alone in those struggles. That's what happens. Three, three. cultivate humility through regular and consistent prayer cultivate humility through regular and consistent prayer nothing shows greater humility than our devotion to prayer especially during these times because when we come to god in regular and consistent prayer we are acknowledging that we are dependent upon him and that we need him that we need his care and his protection and his perspective you know people ask does prayer change things I think it absolutely does, and it especially changes us. It changes our perspective, doesn't it? Our outlook on life. Prayer humbles us as we're on our knees before our Heavenly Father, asking for His help, abiding in His presence. And beloved, I believe that one of the things that God is doing right now is humbling us in the face of this current crisis that we face. Everything is on pause to remind us of what's most important. And some of us are not very comfortable with silence and solitude for the wrong reasons. Not because we should all long to be together. We should all long to for things to go back to normal in one sense so that we could be in regular fellowship because that's what the church is. there It's the gathered people of God. That's a, a pure, wonderful desire. But others of us, are just not comfortable with silence and solitude before the Lord. That's the honest reality. But the Lord is showing us that our first priority must be simply to be still and know that He is God. He is God. And the Lord uses circumstances like these to humble us. How merciful of God during this time to humble us, to bring us to the end of ourselves and everything that we tend to depend on and everything that we look to satisfy us, to get us to the point of seeking His face, delighting in Him, and finding our fulfillment and satisfaction in Him. Amen? I pray that you see that. The disciples would learn this later on, and Peter especially would learn it. That's why he writes this, and I close with this passage, 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 5. Think about the words of our brother Peter, who went through so much in the gospel of Mark. He writes this in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 5. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. And we might ask here, how do we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God? He tells us, by casting all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him. Firm in your faith knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to Him be dominion forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Father, thank You for the humility of Your Son your eternal son who came into the world to save sinners such as us. Father, help us to follow his example, his mindset, his heart, and his priorities. He came to seek and to serve. Father, help us to have that mentality as your people. We pray in Jesus name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.